From the Bada College, the round is the measure of time that is most often referenced in D&D. In original D&D, AD&D 1st Edition, and AD&D 2nd Edition, a round was one minute long. However, AD&D 2nd Edition makes the point of saying rounds are abstract, kind of like hit points, and not an absolute measurement of time. Basic D&D throughout all versions of the basic set and up to the rule cyclopedia has 10 second rounds, but also mentions that combat that takes less than one turn, which is 10 minutes, should be considered to take one turn, which is 10 minutes. This is because we need to know when your torches burn out. In D&D 3rd, 4th, and 5th edition, we have 6 second rounds. This is most likely because that means 10 rounds equates to 1 minute. Besides, who uses torches anymore anyway? We all have dark vision or light spells. I mean, there's magic everywhere in this world. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. Well, we both love lots of other RPGs. D&D is what we spend most of our segments on. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they made me head gnome, so I'm kind of in charge of the whole <laughs> thing. But let's not look at that too closely. <laughs> I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about seasons and calendars in our games and why we keep track of such things. Also, how they can enhance your games. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Hey, 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 I've gotten to play! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So Jared's going to talk about his game that I played in, but I also played my other two D&D games that have been ongoing. The Undermountain slash not Undermountain <laughs> anymore game was, well, we got together. <laughs> it had been six weeks since we played, so we did talk about where we were and what we were going to be doing next, and we kind of did some maintenance stuff. I don't want to call it shopping, but we did some prep and inventory cleanup and stuff like that. We really didn't play. Mm-hmm. The GM has been dealing with a pretty complicated move, and not only did he have to move households, he found out that they still needed to do some work in the office where he was setting everything up, because a man allergic to cats cannot exactly work in a carpeted room that was the home of many cats. Yikes. He was working on getting the office set up and pretty much had his desk set up and all the equipment plugged in, and he's like, why can't I breathe? Uh, and then they, they realized that the room he was using in his office was pretty much the room where they had like the cat boxes, the cat scratchers. It was like the it was the weight room and the cat room. <laughs> they needed to pull out the carpet and, you know, do some other stuff in there before he can actually get set up. Yeah. My other game, the Night's Dark Terror game, uh, was a, actually a really great session. We made our way into the ruins of Zethaka. And we worked our way through the ruins into the tower and uh, found the big bad, a uh, masked wizard named Gothar. We had a really great fight with him and we did take him out before he could escape, before he could become a recurring villain. (laughs) 
we could have actually ended this phase of the campaign there because we are planning on wrapping up and moving back into the City of Cowles campaign, but we decided to play one more session where we basically go get to rescue some of the farmers that were kidnapped before they're sold off to slavers or anything like that. Basically, we had a player missing in the last session, and while she wouldn't have been that upset if we just ended it there, we decided we wanted to play one more time with everyone together, and then the next time we play after that will be the start of the City of Cows campaign. Um, so this time around, we got to play our Midgard game last week, which is great. Yes. Our Midgard crew went back to Mother Heartstopper's lair because the Night Hag had another victim beyond Kazina's sister. So the crew ran into the surviving Void-Blessed Ogre that had not died in their last encounter. This time around, it felt a little bit more challenging than the first time around. I think you guys just really got the drop on them last time. And this time, it slapped your Dragonborn fighter real hard with its tentacle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got really lucky in that previous fight with the two of them. And we had some... I mean, it wasn't... I wouldn't say that it was necessarily hard because we took him out in like two or three rounds yeah it wasn't like the whole party was in danger but it was like when it was concentrating on yeah. on your fighter it was really wearing down the fighter's hit points yeah i think he took marin down to what five hit points yeah which was concerning to him because that doesn't happen that doesn't happen <laughs> Um, so eventually the PCs found a section of the cave that was warping and twisting like it was hard to perceive properly and they found the creature that was guarding the other victim of the night hag. And it was all mouth and fangs and spiky tentacles. And that was a bah Bahalna. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. We never got a name for it. It was just the creepy thing on the ceiling. It's a creature that's native to the Plane of Shadows. And it's also a thing that has some of the weirdest mechanics in D&D for a monster. This is an actual one from the Monster Manual. This isn't like a third-party thing that, that's weird. This is like homegrown Watsy weird. <laughs> it can turn invisible, and it can teleport, which I get because it's tied into the Plane of Shadows, but it can only turn invisible and teleport using legendary action. It literally can't just do it. It's got to be in combat and react, you know, taking a turn after someone else goes in order to do those things. <laughs> and I mean, it, it made for a nice dynamic fight. I, I kind of surprised some party members when they didn't realize it could just appear in part of the cave and start slapping and chewing on them. I also got to see the Cyanite's mobility when it tried to retreat by teleporting. And he basically just ran and then did a Jedi jump to uh, clear the distance and then smacked it <laughs> to finish it off. In the Night Hag's actual lair, they ran into a Shadow Beast, which is a fey creature with some more ties to the Plane of Shadows, but it took off as soon as it was bloodied. We had kind of a fun argument where it was like, your boss is dead. You don't have to do this. And, you know, as soon as it was bloodied, it was like, yeah, you're right. But it never made it to the door that it, or the wall that it was going to phase through. I mean, we gave him the chance. We told him, <laughs> look, dude, we took out your boss. You should just go. But nope, he couldn't. He didn't. He tried to run once he was bloodied. It just didn't do him much good. Um, the PZs found some pretty heavy-hitting magic items, but they were a little bit too ominous for the party. So they destroyed the pulsing purple shard and the cauldron of blood. Oddly enough, no one wanted to attune to those. They did also find a ridiculously super-powered suit of uh, armor, which our 
cleric is probably going to be wearing. I believe he's already attuned to it, so... Yeah, we're going to see how big a hole your DM dug for himself by handing that out as treasure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We ended the session outside the Temple of Hecate with our Dragonborn fighter calling out the Broken Queen, which is a royal chimera that the PCs were sent to kill. And it turns out that... um, Kazina snuck in and kind of spied on what was going on in the temple and realized that the priestesses weren't overly loyal to the uh, Broken Queen. So when Marin called her out, she leaves the temple and the temple turned invisible because the priestesses have other ideas about what to do. And that's where we left off that session. So we're going to start a big, giant royal chimera fight next time we get to play. I was actually pretty glad we were able to do at least that because... Marin was just like, why do we care about these priestesses? Let's just hit them with a fireball. And it's like, oh, for the love of God, can we please just stop killing anything because you think it's evil? It's really interesting because Hecate in Midgard, she has the three faces, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And each one actually has a different alignment. So if she is in the full moon crone phase, she's actually a benevolent deity. It's the other two you have to you know, worry about because one is chaotic and one is evil. Yeah. You and I have talked about this a bit. And like, Kazina is a tiefling. Mm -hmm. She is somebody who is perceived as inherently evil by many people in the world. The way Marin talks, she's like, you could be saying that about me. Why do I get a pass? And he's like, oh, you're not. It's not the same. And it's like. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting because, yeah, his character really thinks of you as like, you don't count because I know you're my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And mm. I have ideas on where we're going next. And <laughs> I don't know how this is going to work. <laughs> Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. So moving on into our Dungeon Master's Workshop, while it may not figure into the nitty gritty of every game, Keeping track of the seasons and the calendar of your game world can be a very useful thing to enhance the game for you and your players. So we thought it would be interesting, especially after our recent changing of the clocks here in the (laughs) States. Let's dig into how to handle seasons and calendars in your game. First question out of the gate, why keep track of a calendar and the passage of time in a campaign at all? I think in some cases, having a calendar makes downtime feel a little bit more meaningful. So you aren't just hand-waving that your PCs took six months off to learn some languages and they actually (laughs) feel like time is passing. It's also a a way to know that like travel means something. If you leave in the spring and decide to travel halfway across the continent by foot, it would be really strange if it wasn't getting close to fall by the end of that trip. (laughs) It's so that everything isn't completely hand-waved. It's kind of adding to the similitude of the game. I think also if you as a GM know that there are things happening in the background that your NPCs are doing mm-hmm. or your your bad guys are doing, you have an idea of how long those things are going to take them. And if you have a calendar that you're keeping track of the passage of time in your game, you can also know how long it's going to take before those things come to fruition. And either your players have a chance to stop them or they have to deal with them when they do become active. It's it's probably not something that's necessary to dig into in a campaign that's meant to be relatively short, but anything that's going to cover multiple levels for your characters, you should probably 
be keeping track of how long it's been. Mm-hmm. Um, just so you know how these things are going. Yeah, and you, you make a really good point there when you're talking about tracking what villains are doing. Because, you know, if you have a calendar, like an actual calendar, you're keeping track of your campaign in, you can put like notes kind of like you would on your Google calendar saying, if they haven't dealt with this by this time, this happens. Yeah. And, you know, then you know that things are changing in the campaign world based on what the PCs prioritize. And speaking of the verisimilitude of a game, if time is passing and your characters are in an area where the climate has seasons, it really helps to be able to mention what's happening with the weather because that can really mm-hmm. add a bit of punch and flavor to your scenes and your encounters. Mm-hmm. There's a real big difference between having a fight in the middle of a snowstorm versus on a beautiful sunny summer day. Or in the middle of a torrential rainstorm or, you know, like whatever's going on. If you know what season they're supposed to be in, you know, that can really make things interesting. It's been interesting for me, too, running this uh, current campaign because the Dragon Empire, at least where you're at, is more of a Mediterranean climate. So it's been kind of interesting for me to try and figure out, okay, how does the weather change over the uh, over the months in that kind of climate versus just assuming that you're in a more temperate climate? you know, like Central Europe. Well, you know, like I was just thinking that, you know, I've been running the uh, the Zendrick campaign, which is a equatorial jungle mm-hmm. region. It, the climate is what the climate is, but the way seasons tend to work in those regions is you have your rainy seasons. Yeah. The temperature and the length of the day may stay about the same, but, oh, hey, it's the rainy season that's going to make travel more difficult that's going to you know impact these other things it's going to make tra- you know like any boat travel much more complicated you also kind of hit on a very interesting point there because if you go the opposite direction and you're having your players in places that are arctic or subarctic like say icewind dale there's parts of the year when it's going to be night for a long period of time which can be very interesting for adventures i have a friend who was up in the um the higher latitude, is it latitudes of uh, Sweden? Mm-hmm. You know, she was there during the late fall. And I think it was the day was about four hours long. <laughs> you know, it was like getting to the point where like, you know, it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. Oh, hey, there's a little bit of light. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's like, that's something that can really add, to, especially if you're trying to play a game in an extreme climate like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, extreme region like that, that you play with those type of things. You don't get the same amount of daylight in, you know, a northern, you know, like a, I should say northern, and it doesn't matter if you're northern yeah. or southern pole. It's like if you are at those latitudes. Yeah, to borrow from one of my favorite um, horror comics or movies, you know, 30 Days of Night, if you're counting on the sun coming up to take out those vampires, it may not in a uh, in an Arctic climate. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to veer off a little bit from D&D, but I've always wondered if anyone has ever done an Anchorage by Night <laughs> vampire game. As... That would be interesting. Yeah. In addition to the seasons and just a calendar in general, how important are building holidays and festivals into the calendar of whatever setter, setting you're playing in? So I think... 
for narrative purposes, holidays and festivals are almost like your paragraph breaks in your calendar. So everything doesn't just run together. <laughs> it's kind of fine to say, you know, to break things up into seasons, but sometimes you want there to be kind of like these flags planted in certain points of the year where you know things are progressing and that's the thing that's going to come up over and over again. I think leaning again, leaning into verisimilitude, I don't think there's a society out there that doesn't celebrate holidays of some kind. Oh, yeah. Almost every culture has some sort of winter celebration. Mm -hmm. You want to build these things into the settings that you're playing in. Yeah, and that can be like a touchstone. Yeah, if you're building a calendar out of nothing and not using an existing one for a setting, looking for those things that are very common, like, you know, the people celebrating on solstices, those are the things to look at so that it feels more universal. You know, you understand this may not be Earth, but this is a place that is similar to Earth, so they may have certain things in common, even if they're not identical. Dragonlance mentions that there is a Yule celebration at the beginning of winter. They even have... A white-robed wizard that teleports around <laughs> giving presents to, uh, to good children. But, I mean, on a deeper level, your holidays and festivals will tell you what's important in the setting. And for narrative purposes, you can underscore things by tying them to a holiday. For example, in the Forgotten Realms, you have Shield Meep, which is a leap year holiday that only shows up every four years on the calendar. And that holiday is traditionally used for signing new contracts, uh, making new... Um, you know, making new treaties, forging new alliances, and having tournaments. So if you're going to have something where like a treaty or a tournament or something is going to be important to the adventure, knowing that there's a holiday where that's a theme is going to really underscore what you want to do with that. And I just think in general, having the opportunity to have a session set during a holiday or a festival or something can add a little, a little bit of fun and life to your game. You know, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of intrigue or just fun shenanigans that can happen during a festival or a holiday or a game. I, I actually kind of love doing the, you know, okay, what did my character get your character as a gift type of thing? Mm -hmm. I've done that several times with various characters and been like, this is what my character gave this person. And this is, you know, like it's, 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 you know, in the grand scheme of thing, it's not a huge factor, but it is a character defining thing that can be fun to lean into on occasion. And that's actually an interesting thing too, because we are thinking of big picture calendar items, but there are individual character things that you can put on a calendar when you're building it out for a campaign. Like when are your characters birthdays? Mm -hmm. Do they have like an anniversary with a specific loved one that you can put on the calendar that comes up at a certain time? There's actually some interesting character specific things that you can put on a calendar that have meaning too. I know in the City of Cows campaign, the campaign itself has not taken a great amount of time. I think since we started at second level to where we mm -hmm. are now at 11th level is maybe been six months. Yeah. It's really been a fairly compressed amount of time. But in one of the between stages where we basically like paused the campaign and then picked it back up again, there was a, like a, a week's passage and I happened to ask the GM, any holidays? And he's like, ah, uh, yeah, there's this one, which is a such and such a gift giving holiday. And I'm like, okay, Dove got gifts for everyone. Mm -hmm. And everyone was kind of like, uh, but I didn't get you anything. <laughs> and it's like, that doesn't matter. I got you this gift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we've, we've covered this a little bit already, but what does tracking the seasons give you for your campaign? 
So on one hand, I talked about if you already have an adventure in mind, you can look for a holiday that you tie to the adventure. But that can work the other way, too. You can look at what holidays exist, and those can be adventure hooks for you. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a specific point in the calendar, in the Midgard calendar, in that setting, that is called mustering. And that is the season when all of the armies get ready to go move out to fight any wars that they're going to be fighting, and mercenary companies get hired. And if you see that come up on the calendar, you're like, huh, I could do an adventure that centers around mercenary. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, reminds you, it gives you some extra prompts beyond whatever other adventure hooks that you might already have in your in your yeah. head. And it also lets you track time with a degree of granularity. So it will remind you of things like, oh, it's a full moon. We could have lycanthrop encounters, which is nice <laughs> because then you're not going, hey, um, is there a full moon? And you go, sure. And then <laughs> the next time your players ask, is there a full moon? And you go, sure. <laughs> Like, but it's only been a week. Oh, the moon moves really fast around here. <laughs> I, I think we covered most of what I would say about tracking seasons. It's a seasoning <laughs> for your game because it, it helps add to the flavor of what you're presenting in the game world. It helps ground your players in it even more when they understand what season it is, what type of climate they're dealing with. You know, all of these things. And I think what's really interesting is I remember this coming up more when I was younger in D&D, but I think people are so used to the idea of like using magic to travel around or, you know, being able to adventure nearby. But there was a point in time when you're kind of assumed that it's winter. You're not doing anything else. You yeah. know, you're going to take the winter off of adventuring or fighting or traveling across the continent to find a new dungeon. I'm, I'm sitting here. And it's getting dark at like five o'clock and I don't want to go anywhere. Why? Why does my species not hibernate? This is what I want to know. If I lived in a world where I could not work during the winter and I could, you know, live through the winter and get ready for going back to work in the spring, I totally would take the winter off. I want a good book, a warm blanket and a nice fire. Okay. <laughs> Why does society need to continue? Let's, let's just lean into the, Hey, this is a climate where the weather gets cold in the winter. Let's all just chill for a few months. So leaning back specifically into D and D as an intellectual property, there are some very specific calendars with the various D&D settings. Which ones are you most familiar with? The calendar of Harptos is probably, even if you don't think you've seen it, if you've looked through a fifth edition product, you may have seen the calendar of Harptos because that's the one that they use as an example. That's the calendar that the Forgotten Realms uses. Mm -hmm. It is really interesting because despite being like the most commonly referenced D&D calendar, it is not based on the way calendars work in the real, you know, in our world, the weeks are 10 days long. None of the months are more than 30 days because all of the extra days end up being holidays. So I like that it feels different, even though it has some of those touchstones to it. One of the interesting things about the Dragonlance calendar for me is that there are three moons, you know, that circle Kryn. So one of the things with the calendar is knowing when a specific event called the Night of the Eye happens which is when Solinari, Lunatari, and Nuatari are all full, because when they're all full, they line up and look like an eye with a red iris. And this is like <laughs> a night when a lot of magical stuff happens. So that's a neat thing to be able to track on your calendar. And it has meaning in the setting. You know, we were talking about the Midgard setting. 
that calendar starts in spring because it's kind of modeling more of like an Eastern European thing. And they hung on to that concept of, you know, the year starting in spring a little bit longer than other parts of Europe. Yeah, I mean, to me, that makes more sense. It does. We can probably blame all of this on the Romans, but I don't know why our calendar (laughs) ends at the death of the year when it's the (laughs) coldest and the shortest day and all this, but Mm -hmm. whatever, Romans. And then, you know, you have some holidays on that calendar, like Hag's Night, which is sort of like All Hallows' Eve, and the Night of Open Roads, which is when all the ley lines make the worlds a little bit closer together so it's easier to cross barriers. And those things are great things to have on your calendar for when you want some adventure content. What are some calendars that you know about, Ange? I mean, honestly, the only one I'm super familiar with is the the Eberron calendar. And to be completely honest, I, I don't pay as much attention to it as I probably should. <laughs> I do know that it it sticks with the the seven days a week. I don't know where the extra days are. I haven't dug into it enough to know that, but there's seven day weeks, there's 12 months, and the months are all 28 days. But where's the other days of the year? <laughs> Is it just a shorter year? Which, I mean, technically, if you're dealing with how long it takes a planet to circle the sun, it is very possible mm-hmm. that, you know, the planet only takes that long to circle the sun. Calendars are all based on the turning of the seasons. And, you know, this is this is what we deal with. I think this also leads into what are some of the pitfalls when using a custom calendar <laughs> for your game? Uh, I'll start right away is like, your months and your days all having custom names and your player asks you what day it is and you tell them and they're like, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) That's really funny because if you listen, that has come up a couple times on Critical Role (laughs) because Matt went through and he's got specific names for all the months and the days of the week and all of that. And at one point in time, like someone in character asked someone like what day of the week it was or something. And he answered with the insetting thing. And they're like, what does that mean? Because <laughs> it's not something that the players actually interacted with all that often. Yeah. For my Eberron game, I've leaned into the month names because like I very specifically started the contest happened in the month of Nim. Mm-hmm. And then they basically started the journey at the end of Nim and into the month of Larvian. But I generally don't use the days of the week because they're, they're Sul, Mol, Zol, Weir, Zor, Far, and Sar. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's really cool, but at the same time, on a practical level, you, you have to deal with the fact that, yes, it's very cool that you have these very specific things for your <laughs> setting, but your players also need to understand what they mean. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's kind of like when there is specific slang for a setting. It's kind of a neat concept, but it is not always comfortable or intuitive to use that setting specific knowledge. Yeah. Sometimes it's cooler just to know that it exists, even if you're not going to use it. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I think where I've settled with the Zendrick campaign is probably where I'm most comfortable is referencing the months, mm-hmm. you know, and I can let the players know hey, this month is the equivalent of July. Yeah. But I tend to just days of the week. Yes, I know Thor doesn't exist in Eberron, <laughs> but it's still Thursday, okay? That's where I'm, I have an easier time with Midgard there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thor does exist there, so. 
I also like, you know, the, the realms has a few helpful things with their month naming, like Alturiac, the claws of winter. That one kind of gets across, <laughs> you know, when, what time of year this is taking place in green yeah. grass. That's a pretty good, you know, indication. That's a spring uh, month there. <laughs> Let's talk about some published adventures where the calendar or the seasons has played an important role. So one that jumps to mind immediately is the original um, series of Dragonlance adventures. Obviously, from the novels, even if you've never looked at the adventures, you know the novels went from Dragons of Autumn Twilight to Dragons of Winter Night to uh, Dragons of Spring Dawning. Well, the adventures basically followed that same pattern, except that there was like three adventures, no, four, four adventures for each season. And basically what was happening, like as it moved from fall into winter, for example, if you had refugees that you rescued from Pax Tharkis, you had to figure out some place for those refugees to take shelter for the winter. That was actually a, an important part of the adventure, and that's part of why you end up going to the dwarves of Thorbarden and trying to convince them, hey, if we do a thing for you, will you let some of these refugees stay here so that they don't freeze to death? So, I mean, that was an interesting way that they kind of incorporated that. And it's also kind of an interesting like thematic thing because the big resolution happens in spring. So it is kind of like this rebirth of what Kryn was like previous to the Cataclysm that is coinciding with spring. My biggest experience with this is with the Dragon Heist adventure. It's presented to you that you can choose who your big bad is for the, the entire adventure. And depending upon who you choose, it changes what season the game is supposed to take place in. You know, and so like if you choose, I don't remember specifically offhand, but like you choose one, that's supposed to happen over the course of spring. You choose a different one. This is supposed to be summer. And I thought it was interesting because it very specifically talks about the way Waterdeep functions during the seasons. Mm -hmm. Because as we mentioned, this whole why don't we hibernate thing, Waterdeep, according to the literature, shuts down during winter. Yeah. Most people, they stock up on their supplies. They stay home. They don't really go out unless they have to. The city streets are generally pretty quiet. There's not a whole lot going on. There's not really any commerce coming into the city, either from the overland trade trade routes or through the the docks. It's just very quiet and low key. I thought that was pretty interesting on how that set up. Yeah, and another thing that's kind of interesting about that is that part of how Lord Neverember ends up in Neverwinter is that a lot of the nobles and people with money in Waterdeep will leave in the fall for Neverwinter because Neverwinter does not get cold in the winter. So that's like their winter vacation spot. <laughs> Neverwinter has that handy dandy, quite dangerous volcano. <laughs> hey, as long as it doesn't erupt, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's called Neverwinter. Exactly. That's one of those things where, you know, like I played the video games for a while <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like years later, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's why it's called Neverwinter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. There's another adventure where it becomes important to know the time of year and everything is the Strixhaven book that came out where it's basically centered around a magical school and the adventure that comes with it takes place over the course of multiple years that you're in school. So there are different school events that happen at different times of the year. And then as you're getting towards the end of the term, you actually get to take tests 
And if you do well on the test, you get to spend certain resources to help you, you know, when you do your next adventure, because, you know, you you have that buzz off of, you know, doing really good the previous year. And, you know, you're also tracking like because this school year ended and this one began, you're no longer a first year student. So now you can enter your specific house. So all of that stuff is built into that campaign in the uh, Strixhaven book. What about the um, the I can't think of the name of them right now, the giant adventure. Does that deal with seasons or is it just because it's all up north that it's all supposed to be cold and wintry? Storm King's Thunder doesn't really address seasons a whole lot. There is an interesting adventure in D&D that deals with seasons but doesn't, which is um, <laughs> Rime of the Frost Maiden. Because basically because of Arl being exiled to that region of Faerun, it has been winter there for like two years. <laughs> So, I mean, it's an interesting kind of reverse way of utilizing the importance of the passage of, of uh, seasons. <laughs> Have you dealt with in any of your, your non-specific, you know, like pre-written campaigns? Have you done anything with seasons? Um, I actually went through and I have a calendar for our campaign and it's all nicely set up. And I know what, you know, what time of year it is. I know they've been working for your for nine months so far. Um, I know all of this stuff. But when it comes to the few times that I've run a campaign that I have, you know, made up the setting for, I must admit, I don't think about it as much because <laughs> I don't have the base level tool there. And when I do think about it, I usually do think about it in broader terms like, OK, there's going to be a solstice coming up. Yeah. You know, there's going to be, you know, this. So that's kind of my baseline where it's like, well, at least I know there's these holidays. I did um in in my previous Eberron campaign, the Veterans of the Gauntlet, um, they, they, they traveled quite a bit. Mm -hmm. They went around a bit of the, the western part of Corvair. They went to Arganesson, and then they came back to Corvair, up to Stormreach. Mm -hmm. Stormreach is not the right name of the, uh, the city. It's the north city that's where the, um, the half-elves are based out of. But from there, they went to Ice White Island, and so I had an Arctic adventure that they were on. And I know we talked about the days being shorter, mm -hmm. but I definitely didn't really lean too far into the, oh, you only have about four hours of daylight yeah. or anything like that. I just leaned into the, you know, the days are shorter, but also because of the northern lights and the snow, there's more light at night. So mm -hmm. you can travel a little longer and. I've leaned in the climate of various locations, but not necessarily the passing of seasons because of the way they traveled. Yeah. Um, I was going to say way back when I was still in high school, when we had a nautical campaign in the realms, I know it did come up that they would start having adventures that leaned more towards, you know, Baldur's Gate and Ammon and places like that in the winter, because you can't get into the port in Luskin in the winter because it, you know, it gets completely, you know, covered with the ice flows up yeah. there. And like you said, Waterdeep, you can get into the uh, into the docks there, but there's nothing going on in Waterdeep in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any last thoughts on calendars? There's so much you can do with them, and they're so easy to forget about. Yeah. I think it's really, they can add a whole lot to a campaign if you remember it. Like, even just having this discussion, I'm starting to think, I should get all of your birthdays. In, in the Midgard <laughs> campaign, just so that I know when those are, because that would be another thing to be nice to have on that calendar. 
I would say if you are a GM and you are running a game and you haven't given any thought at all to calendars, it does not mean that you are a bad GM. No. It is something that if you do want to look into and lean into, it can enhance your game and honestly sometimes make it easier for you to run long-term campaign and plot events. Because like I said, you can keep track of what the bad guys are doing too on that calendar. And there are ways to even use the passage of time without necessarily going into the detail of using a calendar. I know earlier, like in Adventures League, you would get so many number of downtime days for each adventure that you played. To a certain extent, you can go back and look at that character and say, I've got 360 downtime days, so that means that this character has been adventuring for a year now. Like, it still kind of gives you that same feeling that you know time is passing when you see a resource like downtime days being expressed in that manner. It's something to think about. Mm -hmm. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. All right, now we are going to move into our downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So, speaking of calendars, (laughs) if you are looking to keep track of your game's calendar, it might be worth checking out fantasycalendar.com. It has some setting-specific calendars built in, but you can also set up a a specific calendar for your game and use it to keep track of notes and passage of time and all of that fun stuff. The website is app.fantasy-calendar.com and that'll take you to where you need to go. We'll have a link in the notes and all of that stuff. Probably shocking to you, but I actually built the Midgard calendar (laughs) using that website to help me keep track of what time of year it is, taking, you know, all the things out of the campaign setting book. And I also built a Dragonlance calendar, mainly because once you tell it what the cycle for each moon is, you can automate that. And then it's going to tell you when the night of the eye comes up every time. (laughs) Hey, Jared, is it a full moon? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so this time around, I wanted to talk about the Rockdose Patreon. Uh, Rockdose, as the name indicates, they do a lot of maps for the Ravnica setting from Magic the Gathering, but these maps happen to include five-foot squares for all of your Ravnica battle map needs. The maps look really great, and a lot of them can obviously be repurposed for other settings. You have a really neat, you know, slaughter pit for uh, Rockdose. You know, you can use that for any kind of cult that you want to use there. In addition to the Ravnica-themed maps, there are also maps that were based on Innistrad. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Innistrad works really well for Ravenloft. (laughs) There's also some Baldur's Gate-based maps. And another neat one that I found on there is they have the arena from Neverwinter in the D&D movie. And they have the version of it where the arena is clear. And they have the version of it where all of the blocks start coming up and making the maze. That's awesome. It is. So we will have a link to that Patreon in our show notes as well. We're happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we want to give a shout-out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, consider checking out... I would just like to say before I read this one, and just particularly cruel making me read this one again after I just read it for the Gnome Cat. <laughs> hey, hey, I grabbed the shortened version that Chris put together, so... 
Misdirected Mark plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Now, instead of just hearing them talk, you can actually hear what they do at the table. It's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MM Plays. Not MMP Plays. (laughs) (laughs) We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.